If you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, the first five verses tonight. Now, growing up in a, in a Baptist church, uh, one of our favorite hymns was Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. What a beautiful hymn. Fanny Crosby authored that hymn. Uh, She's so popular, writing some 8,000 hymns in her lifetime. She was blinded at birth, or nearly at birth, early in her life. Uh, she was so prolific that people didn't want every hymn in their hymnal written by Fanny J. Crosby. Uh, so she wrote under some pseudonyms. But that song really leads us to the, the heart of the entirety of chapter 5. And especially the first 11 verses the first five of which we'll get tonight. Because God wants us to be sure of our foundation. He wants us to be sure of our salvation. He wants us to be sure that we are in Christ Jesus. We, he wants us to be sure that we know the Lord. He wants us to be sure or have assurance of our salvation. And you really have two opposing sides of this issue. And those two sides have been battling over the same basic scriptures for a little more than 500 years, beginning at the period that we call the Reformation. So in the early 1500s, Martin Luther on one side uh, begins this movement that we know as the Reformation. We've already looked at a little bit of it as we began this amazing book. The just shall live by faith. And so it, it flew in the face of Catholicism. Catholicism had said, here's the seven sacraments of the church, and the only way for a person to be justified was by keeping the sacraments of the church. The Catholic Church then, and the Catholic Church primarily today, not all Catholics believe it individually, but the Catholic Church, the official doctrine is, you must be baptized into the Catholic Church in order to be a believer. That's an official tenet of the church. Martin Luther says, that's not true. And he uses as the basis of that the book of Romans. And from there, a split occurs not many years later. Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis to the castle church in Wittenberg, laying out all these various things that he has grievance and ought, according to Scripture, by the way, not just with the church, but the Bible says versus the church says. And so he lays these things out. And within 50 years, the church begins to argue about evangelical Christendom. And they divide themselves into two basic groups, the first of which, if you were with us a few weeks ago, as I shared on a Sunday morning, and you can watch that message online, uh, but the doctrine of election became the forefront. Is there a master list someplace and it's just God's sovereign work? Or, or does it lean more towards that which is the accomplishment of man or works? And so you have on one side the hardcore Calvinist. On the other side, you have the followers of Jacob Arminius. And we're going to get to them tonight because it's essential, not so that we have arguments with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, because you're going to see your Calvinist brothers and sisters in heaven. Amen? 
And you're also going to see your Arminian brothers and sisters in, in heaven. But there are a handful of things that we emphasize one way or another that can cause people great difficulty. And I hope tonight to begin to clear this up in that you can be sure, or another way to look at it, that oft-repeated phrase, once saved, always saved, that you can be eternally secure as a believer in Christ Jesus. And I pray that this will be a time that will enlighten and enrich and encourage. It's not meant to distress or cause you to have a twisted brain because you've gotten too much theology, but it's essential that we as the body of Christ know what our Bibles say. This is the Word of God, and we need to understand the Word of God because if we can understand the Word of God, then we can know that we are secure in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would just simply minister to us that blessed assurance that we have because of Jesus. And so would you now take your word and help us to understand it, that we would know beyond any shadow of doubt how secure we are in Christ. Bless us with that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Romans 5, and therefore having been justified by faith. So he looks backwards. He discussed this very same topic in chapter 1. Having been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Those five solas, those things that are the primary doctrines of the Christian faith, evangelical Christendom, believes the same five things, no matter which side you're on. We've been justified by faith. It's not through works of any kind because even works themselves can be assigned different levels of effectiveness. Even faith itself can turn into a work. And so he reminds us that that faith that we believe with is what gives us the grace of God and that faith itself, as we've already seen, is a gift from the Lord. You do not earn it. You don't manufacture it. It's not faith that you build up. It's faith that's given to you. And through that faith comes God's grace. And our debt is paid. We're made right in the eyes of a holy God that demands the penalty of our sin, which is death, which is the reason that the wrath of God, chapter 1 said, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who do not know the Lord one day will experience the wrath of God. You can be saved from that by faith, which gives you God's grace. So we are justified, made right in the eyes of God, debt paid, Christ's righteousness put into your account, and your sins taken out of your account, placed in Jesus' account, dealt with fully and completely. Essential doctrine of faith. You have to get that one. Because everything else becomes some form of you need to do this in order to get that. That's called works. And if by the works of the flesh no one can be justified, then there's no work that's capable of saving you. So this is a clarification of what's already been said in chapter 1. And it's a very important one. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Think about that for a second. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he hath made alive, amen? 
The reason that you were dead is because you were at war with God. Your sins remained, and the penalty for your rebellion against God by being a sinner without a Savior was death. You were at war with God. You're no longer at war with God. Amen? Hallelujah. As a believer, you're no longer at war with God. I don't know about you. I'll go to war with anybody, anywhere, anytime, anyplace, except against God. That's not a wise choice. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not yourself, not your works. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ, your Lord, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand. Amen? Do you see the beauty of this? It's putting to rest once and for all anything that anyone could ever hope and trust in save the saving grace of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there's no hope for anyone, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. It is at the name of Jesus. As we saw in our Christmas message, it is at the name of Jesus that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it won't matter whether you're in heaven, on earth, or in hell. There's only one name. And we stand in grace because of that faith. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you have the hope of the glory? Do you realize what that says? You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because you're going to share in the glory of God one day when you get there. We do not know what he looks like now, Paul said. He said, when we get there, we're going to be like him. Hallelujah. Because right now, this is not so glorious. Amen. Preach it. Hallelujah. Some of you ladies more glorious than us, guys. But nonetheless, one day you'll share in the glory of God. You're not going to be God, but you're going to get to actually share in the glories of heaven. That's crazy talk. It's the type of thing when you think about it, it's hard to wrap your head around it. And I love verse 3 because it says something that we think sometimes given the promises that we have in God's Word. And it's like the infomercials. And not only that, but wait, if you give your life to Jesus now, we'll also throw in as an added bonus. But wait, I don't like what follows. But we'll also glory in tribulations. That means the stuff that you have going on in your life right now that trouble you, that hurt you, that harm you actually has an eternal weight, a purpose. Oh, hallelujah. Because if I thought all this stuff that I'm going through on this earth was for nothing, that could be really depressing. And it is, and you wonder how many people suffer with depression because they believe that this world is all that there is. And because of the way that they've been treated, the life that they lived, the neighborhood they've come from, the family that they were born into, because of those things, they are without hope. Notice that hope doesn't come from here, it comes from there. Amen? Amen? You see, this passage is monumental. And it's going to give us three links in this amazing chain of grace. And knowing that that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope, This is like linked together 
He's using, again, polysyndetic speech. He links together with a conjunction and. He's, he's putting these things together. It's not like one thing. It's all these things, all linked together. They're all chained to one another. In character, hope. And our hope does not disappoint. Your hope that you have in Jesus will not let you down, family of God. Hallelujah. And here's why. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. God's love has been poured out so that you can know Christ. You know how we know that? Scripture plainly tells us that truth. It's found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Amen? That's the promise. That's the hope that doesn't disappoint. Now, we just got through Christmas, and I'm sure some of you had some presents opened in your house, and I'm pretty sure there were some of these looks. Really? You thought you had it nailed. It was that one thing. And if you have millennial children or teenagers in high school, let me just give you a little secret. It is impossible to buy for them because you cannot relate to their style. It's an impossibility. So whatever you get is probably going to be a disappointment. But your hope that expectancy of opening the glorious doors of heaven that will one day be flung open wide is not going to disappoint you. Your, your expectations will be met a millionfold. And so the security of our salvation is in view here, and we see it linked to the glorious grace of God. Objectively, that security that we have established, it's a fact. We are secure in the fact of salvation. Because God saved us, because you didn't save yourself, the object of your salvation is not you, it's God. Think about it. You have been saved by grace through faith. And that's not of yourself. So who saved you? It wasn't you. The object of the salvation that you now enjoy is God himself. He secured it by sending his only begotten son into the world. So objectively, there's a truth there. But here's the crazy thing, because we think in the world that we live in, in two basic lines of reasoning, there's the objective, in other words, object-oriented, and the subjective, or feeling. So we have fact in one hand and feeling in the other. The subjective feelings that we have also bear witness that we are God's kids. That assurance that we have, that I have in my heart, results in something actually happening in my life. That unspeakable joy, real change that's occurred. I can't tell you how that happened. I didn't go out and get a manual beyond my Bible. 
I, I didn't go join a class and all of a sudden the change happened. The change happened because Christ in me is my hope of glory. And so objectively, I know I've been saved because God saves me. And then subjectively, that assurance that I have is something that I feel within me because my life has actually changed. I'm truly different. I feel different about the world that I live in. I feel different about people. I feel different about myself. I feel different about my marriage and my children. My feelings have been transformed. So subjectively, my life has been transformed. You see, when you get to the heart of knowing you're a child of God, it it provides this incredible security blanket. Now, I I don't know how many of you have a, uh, we have one of those things that you can hang blankets over it and they're like these warming rods and you can like put it over the rods and you turn the thing on and it gets your blankets warm or towels warm or whatever. And I don't know how many of you have ever had a cold day and you grab the warm blanket off there or maybe you hung it over the fireplace screen and that blanket's nice and warm. You sit down on the couch and you wrap yourself in it and all of a sudden there is objective and subjective all in once. The objective is you're actually warm. And the blanket, you're snuggled in it. And in our case, you have a 70-pound Labrador in your lap. But there's also the subjective. You actually feel good. There's something that happens to you. And it's not just the physical. It's mental. It's emotional. It's that, ah. In Christ Jesus, you should have both. You should absolutely know that you are a child of God. It should produce something real in your life. That is the objective evidence. You should also have the subjective evidence that you feel correctly about being a child of God. Amen? Don't miss this. In the middle of this debate, it's 500 years old, and back on on the 11th of December, On a Sunday morning, I I did a study called What in the World is Election? Watch that. That will give you the other side, the Calvinist side. Tonight, I want to focus in a little bit on the other side because here's the deal. If we're not secure in our faith, if you don't absolutely know that you're a child of God, then here's what happens. The devil will try and rip you off. The devil's going to try and convince you of several things. Maybe you're not even a child of God to begin with. Maybe you got saved by grace, but you need to be kept by works. Maybe that all those things you do actually add up to being saved. You see, what happens then is your election then becomes conditional. Your salvation becomes conditional. Your actual relationship with God is no longer by grace through faith. It is something that you did. And if that's the case, you're going to feel unsaved pretty frequently. And in fact, if Jacob Arminius was correct, which I believe he was not, and I think Scripture clearly paints that picture, and we'll get three of the chain links tonight, then if you're saved by some condition you have to keep, then I would say to you, 
no one has ever been saved. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses, not Paul himself, because he actually said these marvelous truths, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He called himself the chief of sinners at the end of his ministry. That means he was actively engaged in at least some sinful behaviors even towards the end of his ministry life after having seen all of the incredible things that God had done through him. So if it's about sinless perfection, you keeping yourself, then we are in trouble. So let's look at it. Do we really have conditional salvation? Are, are, are we saved simply because of something we do? And, and I want to tell you, this is not meant to be a slam on any denomination. A lot, of the, a lot of these things that I'm teaching, most of these denominations would have at least a certain subset or group that doesn't necessarily fall along the basic doctrinal guidelines of even the denomination that they belong to. So there would even be people who would disagree that this is true Arminianism or, or that I have spoken clearly about true Calvinism. But there are both sides of the equation and the extremities of both are wrong the opposite directions. And so let's look at it. Let's get our doctrine squared away so that you can be at peace with the fact that you are a child of God by grace and through faith. It's the reason we do this. Some of those doctrines... Almost all Pentecostal churches, some Baptist, American Baptist being one of them, Methodist, Nazarene, all hold some level of Arminian doctrine. And the reason that I say that, and I love my Arminian brothers and sisters as I love you, the reason that I say these things is what happens when you hold to a place that you, your responsibility is so great that it supersedes God then you not only can't be saved by grace through faith, even if you could, you would have to be kept by your own works. And nobody's works are going to be good enough to do that. So I pray tonight we make this incredible link of these thoughts that Paul lays out here to kind of do away with conditional righteousness that comes to you by way of your works. You see, if as Arminianism teaches a person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ but can sin his way out of God's grace, then the next argument becomes, well, how many sins is that? What kind of sins are they? What do they smell like? How many of them are there? And now all of a sudden, guess who's in charge of salvation? It's no longer God in heaven who sent his only begotten son It's you trying to figure out how many sins you can actually commit and still be saved. And I pray that nobody in here is in that camp. I pray that you realize that you've been saved by grace through faith. Because the questions are limitless. Can we become unsaved? How are we preserved in our relationship with the Lord? Does good works actually have a part in saving us? And to counteract that presumption, the Apostle Paul himself even spoke of this in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 18. It says there down to verse 20. And I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Again, he focuses on you actually having objective evidence that produces subjective feeling. That you would know it. That you would have it. It'd be part of you. 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? You see, you can't have the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints unless you're actually genuinely saved. And if that comes because you did something good, then we're all in deep trouble. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Notice it has no function in works. And these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, that whole passage says it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. The first link in this chain is our peace with God. Notice verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that peace doesn't come from your works. It is through the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. The term therefore connects Paul's present argument with all that's already been said. He's saying, look, all these things that we've already discussed and already looked at, that we've been justified by faith, we have faith, we have peace, we have these things that, that come to us by our relationship with God, they're all on, God's done it. That peace that Paul's talking about is not subjective, it's objective. It's not just a feeling, it's a fact. The peace is a reality. It produces feelings, to be sure. But the peace is a reality. Most unsaved people don't think of themselves as enemies of God, do they? When you talk to people that don't know the Lord, maybe you were in this camp yourself. I know I was. I didn't consider myself an enemy of God until I had the gospel preached to me, and I go, oh my goodness, I'm an enemy of God. I'm a sinner, I need a savior. You see, part of our problem is we think really highly of ourselves, And usually it's because we can find someone who's not as good as we are, right? And because there's someone who's worse than we are, we think we must be better than they, and if we're better than they, then certainly we deserve to have better treatment than they do. That is conditional. That's you trying to determine exactly what God will accept. I'll tell you, if we pass that around the world, we'd get about 7 billion different variations of what that would be, because that's how many people there are on the earth. You see, you may not have any conscious feelings of hatred, but the fact of the matter is, you are an enemy of God without Jesus. That's why chapter 1 said that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It doesn't say against some of the ungodliness or some of the unrighteousness of men. Or if you're a really bad woman or you're a really bad man, you you do something horrible. If you're like Hitler, well, of course the wrath of God is coming on you. But if you're just like that guy who shoplifted because his family was hungry, well, you're in good stead with the Lord. Do Do you hear what I just said? You see, you and I would take those two people and we would put them on very different places, wouldn't we? I would. Forget you. I would. Adolf Hitler's over here. The guy that shoplifts because his family's hungry is over here. Matter of fact, I would sometimes go so far as to say, you know what, I don't know that I find a whole lot that, you know, yeah, I get it. Your kids aren't eating. I'm not sure I wouldn't do that myself, given the situation. You shouldn't, by the way. It's sin, by the way. My point is this. They're both sinners. 
They both need a Savior. Neither can work their way into, God, into God's presence. You see, that's truly what grace is. So there's no neutrality. There's no gradation. There isn't a scale. There isn't, well, you know, this guy's like a, a 1.275 on the centimeter, but this guy's an 8,506. There's none of that. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're in or you're out. You're a believer or an unbeliever, and the wrath of God is coming on all unbelief, no matter how big or how small. And so that means that you're on the enemy's team unless you're a believer. And that means, because Scripture says so, that you are at war with God. You're actually an enemy of the Lord. We'll get to that in chapter 8, principally. But when you read those passages, you realize what God said, we're actually, by definition, when we're not saved, we're hostile towards God. Let me give you a little frightening thing. That means God is against you. Now, he loves you even though you're on the enemy's team, but he is actually against unbelievers. He thwarts their work because he is good. He can only do good. You have set yourself against a holy God by being an unbeliever. Do you see the picture why that peace is so important? Because the peace is a mark that you're no longer at war with God. When you have that internal peace that produces an objective reality, you actually start wanting to please God. You have a desire to read His Word. You want to pray. You think about the things of the Lord. You have a heart for people in the world you never thought you would ever have a heart for. Those things are objective and subjective. At the same time, it's because you now have peace with God. You're no longer at war with Him. You see, this first link in this chain is an incredible sense that I'm okay with God. Now, before you get too far, does that mean that you're perfect? Oh, my goodness, no. Of course not. You're still a sinner. You're still going to be a sinner. The good news is you're probably not going to sin as much as you used to do. And you're probably going to sin maybe in some different ways, and they're going to be a little less visible. Maybe you're even going to be so totally transformed that you might just limit it down to just a handful of sins the whole rest of your life, but you're still going to need Jesus when you die. You'll be a much worse sinner than you were when you got saved. But the good news is God sees you on his side even though you still do some things that are displeasing. That's why we use the phrase, God hates sin and yet loves sinners. Because he can separate, separate those things out. We don't do that very well, right? We always associate the person with the thing. And so when the person does the thing, it, the thing must be who they are. God can separate those two things out. He says, in Adam, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both Christ Jesus is Lord. All things are becoming new. The old man is being suppressed. 
And so that state of war is finally put to an end. It is an objective peace by being reconciled to God. And it is subjective in that wonderful feeling that you have. Man, I know I'm not perfect, but I know Jesus loves me. You ever wake up in the morning and just go, man, God loves me. God loves me. And you can't put your finger on a single reason why. Seriously. I I challenge you, wake up in the morning and God loves me. And then when your mind starts going, yeah, it's because I do this, I do that, just remember, none of those things matter. God loves you in spite of all those things. Not because of them, in spite of them. Your humanity, he's overlooked in Christ Jesus. It's not your own goodness. It's not your own merit. It, it, it's, it's unqualified confidence that you have in that sense because it's not in you. It's only qualified in Christ. So you have peace with God. Oh, brothers and sisters, lay hold of that. Have you ever wondered, now I know most of you know the armor of God in Ephesians 6, right? What are those things that are in there? A little secret? They're the six links. Is not one of them the peace of God? Is not one of them the helmet of salvation? Is it not knowing that you're a child of God? Isn't that one of the pieces of the armor? Is not the shoes of the gospel of peace one of the pieces of armor? Why do you suppose that is? Because that's how you withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one. Amen? When he comes against you and tries to lie to you that you're not a child of God, you grab the helmet of salvation, which is kind of like, get smart, the cone of silence. It's like, you cannot talk to me because I'm in here right now. I am saved. Don't bother me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Just go there. You have that peace. That peace from heaven. Like that Roman engaged in battle that wore those spiked boots, give him firm footing, you just stand in the gospel of peace. As Christ has saved you. The second link is our standing in grace. We're only going to get three tonight, so we're going to make it, and I won't keep you late. You see, think about this for a second. Your Bible was written in almost a fully Jewish context. So when it was authored, most believers were actually formerly Jews. It wouldn't be until we get to Cornelius and his conversion in Acts chapter 10 that the Gentile world begins to be reached. But the initial church was primarily Jewish, so it's understood best in a Jewish context. Through whom, it says there in verse 2, the first part of it, whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The picture is this. You had to have an introduction, and that introduction was a very, very specific introduction if you were a Jew. And here's how you understood it. When you got to the temple, or more importantly, more well seen actually in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Because when the tabernacle was set up, there was a white linen fence that was put all the way around the tabernacle. And it was divided into several courts. The court of women, the court of Gentiles, 
the general court of sacrifice, and then the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And so if you were a Gentile, you couldn't get very close at all. If you were a woman, you could get a little bit closer. If you were a male Jew, you could get into the court of sacrifice. If you were a priest, you could ascend the steps. If you were part of the ministering priest, you could go into the holy place. And exactly on one day a year, on Yom Kippur, after the sacrifices had been made, the high priest himself and him alone could go in and meet with God. One guy, one day a year, for maybe an hour. Now you can see this in its context. Read it again. Through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. You see, the only way you could stand in the presence of God was to be completely cleared of your sin. So much so that the high priest wore a ring of bells around the bottom of his garment and a red scarlet cord that trailed out behind the veil that separated the temple. The holy place from the holy of holies. And so if he went in there and for whatever reason he was unclean, the bell stopped ringing. There was no jingle bells in the holy of holies. He was dead. They could tell because there was no bells. And so the rest of the priests who were working outside, they were keeping the menorah lit, maybe at the table of showbread, the altar of incense. They would grab the cord and drag his dead carcass back out. Because the glory of God had killed him. Do you see it now? Our introduction to God has been by faith through grace that allows us to stand actually in his presence. Think about it. So when that veil was torn from the top to the bottom, that was Jesus throwing the doors open going, let me introduce you to God the Father through Jesus the Son. So important that we understand these truths because your standing is in grace. You've been introduced to God by Jesus the Son. Now imagine you can put it into modern context. All y'all go to D.C. and you show up the White House, you ain't seeing the president, okay? It's not happening. You may get shot on the lawn, but you're not getting in. Here's what has to happen. You have to go to your congressman or your senator. You have to get an invite from him to see the president of the United States. And once you get that invite, you can call the office of the White House and say, I have an invite, in our case, from maybe Barbara Boxer. Maxine Waters from somebody that's in Congress, and then you go to the gate, and they set up a meeting so that you can go into the White House and meet the president. You have gotten an invite letter from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to visit with God the Father. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen? That's that standing that you have in grace. It's mind-boggling. This links us eternally. You see, that's not on you, is it? So how secure are you in the peace of God? The peace of God that, by the way, surpasses your own human understanding that guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? How secure are you if the peace of God came through God's Son? You're pretty secure, aren't you? 
How secure are you if you stand in the grace of God when the grace of God was a gift through faith that came to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ the Son? How secure are you? You are dead, rock, solid, secure. Because that didn't come from you. It came from God. Through that faith that is necessary, even the faith itself is a result of a gift being given to you by God. It's not your own human effort. If it was human effort, frankly, it'd be a mockery of God. If you could work your way to heaven, that would be a mockery of of an eternal God. Because somehow he would then accept something that he himself does not need from someone he fabricated and made, you. But he didn't. He has given you something you can't make, faith. It results in something you can't purchase, grace, and that grace is the introduction into God's presence. Mind-boggling truth. That's the second link. You're standing in grace. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, look, don't be beguiled. (laughs) That which is begun in the Spirit cannot be perfected or kept in the flesh. That's why he said that. That's what he's getting at. He's going, look, you're saved by grace and through faith. Don't think that you can keep yourself saved by good works, because you can't. Remember, he's writing to legalists in the book of Galatians. They were like, well, you need to do this and keep the law. And he's saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're saved by grace and through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that you know through the scriptures alone, the five solas. They're all true. Look, occasionally believers are going to fall into sin. There's no question. So if every time you fell into sin, imagine if you were not anchored in heaven, what would happen? Every time you do something that's dumb, for us here in in Los Angeles, every time we get on the freeway, you become unsaved. You know what I'm saying? You get on the freeway, your whole personality changes. You become the antichrist, and the devil's driving next to you. And you're fighting over supremacy of those two lanes. And you lose your salvation. You wouldn't just lose it once, you might gain it back. You could pray, Lord, forgive me, and by the time you got to, you'd lose it again. If your salvation was conditioned on you doing something as simple as driving with a cool attitude, you're all going to hell. It's true. It's funny, but it's absolutely true. You think about your attitude. Think about when you're sitting around the Christmas tree and you don't get what you thought you were going to get. How many times do you think you got unsaved as a child? Sitting down and mom brings out the tuna casserole. You're unsaved again because you're thinking, well, that is not food. You're disrespecting the provision that God has given you. And on and on and on. You can just see it. You see, because just like my example, over here you have Adolf Hitler, over here you have the person that stole because their family's hungry. Maybe you're someplace in between. Maybe you're even on the other side of that person who stole because their family's hungry. Maybe it's just a little white lie. But that little white lie is still not okay with the Holy God. Praise God. That second link is our standing in grace. The third link, and the one we'll close with tonight, is our hope of glory. 
And we find that in the remainder of the verses. Through whom we also have access by faith, verse 2 says, into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also in glory, we glory in tribulations, knowing that our tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. You see how these things are all linked together. One leads to the other, which leads to the other, which leads to the other, and not one can be pulled out because they are linked eternally together because of that hope that we have in the glory of God. Not your glory, not in the glory of the church, the glory of the Lord, the glory of heaven. And tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And now hope will never, hope does not disappoint. But because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. You, you see, this whole picture is this. Our salvation is anchored in the past because Christ made peace with God. Amen? Do you see it? That our hope is anchored in the past. It began with God. Hope wasn't something new. Hope didn't start just in the Garden of Eden. God didn't get up in the morning and go, man, that rotten Adam and Eve. I give them all this stuff and what do they turn their back on me and they stab me, the little rotten. Now I have to come up with salvation. Why scripture says we were seen as the beloved of God from before the foundation of the world, right? It wasn't an afterthought, it was a forethought. In that case, your hope is anchored fully in the past because God has always had the plan of salvation, Christ has always been the answer, and there has always been the hope of that future glory. So in that sense, it is anchored in the past. It is anchored in the present because Christ's continual work for you right now, because he is sitting right now tonight before the throne of God interceding for you. Amen? It's anchored today. You're out there sending your little hearts out. You know, you're driving down the freeway and Jesus is going, forgive him, Dad, forgive him, Dad, forgive him, Dad, forgive him, Dad. Now, I don't know what Jesus does to get all those prayers, but he does because he intercedes for us. Amen? So the Lord, in that sense, has you today. So your hope, this wasn't just some idea that got concocted because Adam and Eve didn't quite handle things correctly. It didn't happen there. It was before then. It isn't just enough for today, which is really good. It's also enough for tomorrow. So that hope that we have began in the past, it's good for today, and it absolutely is anchored in our future as well. Now think of this. Think of how you look at this. There's no reason to fear the future because if the God who planned for your salvation did so before the world was created... And the same God that came to earth as Emmanuel, who died on Calvary's cross, is right now before the throne of God saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you not think that that same God who thought about it in the past and made a provision, takes care of it today, is also going to see you home in the future? You see, that's your hope of glory. And that hope also is not in you. It began in the past is taken care of today because of the Lord and is going to see you through all the way until you get home. Hallelujah. 
You have no reason to fear the future. It's been divinely taken care of by the very glory of God. That obedience that you have, our, our entire security, think of it this way, family. Our entire security rests solely, completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is His sustaining power. It says here through the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit in you that it allows the Spirit to work out of you. Amen? And that Spirit is the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of Jeff cleaned up. Again, very important you get that. A lot of Christians think that their spirit somehow can be redeemed enough to be okay with God. No, it's God's spirit in you. It's the very spirit of God indwelling you. It's the Holy Spirit that is the promise for the believer. It's not a cleaned up you, it's the whole him. You can rejoice. And so it rests not in your outward living. It rests in the finished work of Christ. But here's what happens. If you are truly God's child, then you are going to do the things that mark you as a believer. There will be change. Your obedience to the Lord in no way, shape, or form preserves your salvation or maintains your salvation, but it absolutely is evidence that you are one of God's kids. It's part of your assurance. You look at it, man, I I never thought that way before, but I think that way now. I never had a desire to read my Bible, but I have a desire to read my Bible now. I didn't care what God thought. I care what he thinks now. I used to love sin. Now I hate sin. Those things are all markers that you're one of God's kids. They give you that sense of peace. In a very strange way, I kind of giggle sometimes when people come to me and say, I don't know whether I'm saved or not. And, and the first word, I keep doing these things and I hate it. And, and that's where I giggle. Because the fact that they hate the sin is a sign that they actually do care. And because they do care, it's a pretty sure sign that the Spirit of God is at work in their life. You see, that hope is anchored in heaven. It's not because you're doing the right things. It's because you know the only one who can save. And because of that, we're going to be persecuted. We're going to to need to mature a bit. And that maturity is going to help you have some clarity. Isn't it funny? Have you ever thought about this? Do you remember when you were, you know, 20-something, maybe you were in college, and you remember those days of waking up and going, man, I am the smartest person on earth. You know, you may have not said it that way, but you thought it. And you thought your parents were dumb as a sack of hot rocks, Right? Like, they didn't know a thing, and you just like, yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know, if they were, you know, they were born back then, you know, so they can't know this. And then as you get older, what happens? You realize exactly how intelligent your parents were, right? And how dumb you were. The same thing happens spiritually. As you mature, when you initially get saved, there's this wonderful work that just happens instantaneously. And you're like on cloud nine, Jesus loves me, I'm going to heaven. And you kind of, you have kind of like this little spiritual awakening in your life. And then as you grow in Christ, you realize that you don't know a thing about God. 
and you're growing constantly, and some new truth comes into your life, and you come to a Bible study like this, and you go, man, I didn't know that. That truth was hidden from me. You see, as you age, as you go through persecution, as you go through trial, as you have to test your faith and have it tested, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience, when it has its perfect worth, leaves you complete same principle. Gives you clarity. Helps you understand what it really means to be a child of God. You realize you've come a long ways, but you also realize you've got a ways to go. You realize God loved you from before the foundation of the world. He loves you in the here and now, and he's going to love you all the way home. You see, that blessed assurance that you have is absolutely anchored in heaven. That, that blessed assurance that you have, that I have, gives us peace in our heart. It gives us grace-filled living. It, it gives us perseverance in those trials and tribulations, those things that we go through, because it's going to produce character in you. It's going to test you. But at the end of the day, you're going to be clinging to Jesus. You're going to know that you're a child of God. And so that assurance grows. It strengthens as you get older. And yes, it will be tested. Yes, you'll have those moments where, oh, Lord. But you know what's going to happen? You'll remember the grace of God. Oh, it began with him. You know what will happen? You'll remember the peace of God. Oh, I'm standing in Christ and nothing else. You're going to remember those times when you got through those tribulations, those trials, those difficulties, and you persevered through them, and your hope was in that future glory, not in your present trouble. And you go, oh, the Lord got me through that. And you're going to have an objective reality that says my life has changed and a subjective peace that says I even feel differently. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Worship team's going to come back up. I'm going to play one song and bring some pastors up. Maybe you've got something going on in your life and you just you need a little extra peace. You need somebody to pray over you with it. We'd love to do that. But I want to encourage you. As we begin this new year, be strong in the Lord. Don't let the enemy continue to beat you up and rip you off. Take that blessed assurance and cling to it. Know that you've come a long ways, that you've got a long ways to go, but he who is faithful will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that our hope is not in this world, that our peace is not from this earth. Lord, it is, surpasses the peace that men understand. Lord, we thank you that we have access to the glories of heaven through your grace. We thank you that you give us strength in times of trouble and trial. Pray that you'd give us that incredible assurance that you love us, that your grace is upon us, that your grace that saves is grace that keeps, and your grace that keeps is grace enough to get us home. We ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior, that one name, Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Amen.